Hey guys, we'll jump into today's episode in just a second. But first, a friendly reminder from the Sweeper Keeper team. The Score app is a one-stop shop for all of your footy needs. So if you haven't already, head over to your app store and download it for your iPhone or your Android. Subscribe to your favorite teams and get all of your news, scores, and highlights right in the palm of your hand 24-7. And now, here's today's show. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of the Sweeper Keeper podcast. On the show today, everybody's favorite topic, the international break. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? 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 Listeners, before you run to the hills, good news. We will not be discussing the international break today because... For starters, they probably shouldn't even be playing these games in the middle of a global freaking pandemic. And second of all, with all due respect to Kosovo and North Macedonia and the lot, the games just aren't that interesting. So instead, we'll dive into the transfer window, looking at the big winners and losers now that deadline day has come and gone, and we'll review the week that was in world football which included some absolutely batshit results in the Premier League. I'm your host, Gianluca Neshi, and joining me remotely once again, a man whose favorite team would never give up seven goals to Aston Villa, Daniel Rouse is here. Remotely, and I'm actually recording from the passenger seat of my Mazda 3 right now, because it's the only place where I can get some peace and quiet, so <laughs> an unorthodox recording position for me. Some decent reception in that Mazda. Yeah, it's not bad. I got a nice view of uh, Joseph over the road watering his plants as well, which is quite nice. <laughs> Just don't start revving the engine and we'll be fine. Okay, okay. And socially distanced from him, the proud new owner of a Diego Dallo AC Milan shirt, I can only assume, Anthony Lopopolo is here as well. I'm a bit annoyed that it hasn't come in the post yet. That's that's my biggest that's my biggest concern right now. Where the hell is it? <laughs> is that going to replace the Diego Laxalt shirt on uh, the wall? <laughs> unfortunately, that one uh, was never purchased. So, <laughs> shouts to a Milan legend, Diego Laxalt. Great move for Celtic, though. I have to say, I enjoyed him at that World Cup last time out. I'm a Laxalt fan. It remains. He's a classic, great for country, never good for club type player, which I feel like Uruguay have a lot of. Yep. Yeah, and there there are a lot of examples of that from South American teams. Yeah, one more shout out this time to Jean Beausejour, who for me is like the epitome of that <laughs> category. Uh, the Jean Beausejour podcast coming up in a couple episodes, so stay tuned for and that. Edward, Eduardo Vargas as well. He's a That's player. right. That could be a whole other pod on terrible tattoos. Oh, dear. Right up there with Diego Parati. But, alas, today we're going to dive into... The transfer window. And gents, what a transfer window it was. What a deadline day it was. And let's start off with deadline day. We'll look at the window as a whole. The winners and losers. The best and worst signings. And some of the most intriguing deals that we saw go down. But uh, let's start at the end with deadline day on Monday. And Rouse, as is usually the case, we have to start with Manchester United. Edison Cavani comes in. Alex Telles comes in, a couple of young kids come in, and aside from that, it's a whole lot of nothing, and if you believe the reports, they missed out on all of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's targets, so where do we put Manchester United's transfer window in comparison to some of the teams around them, and especially based on what we've seen from them so far early this season? They've had an absolute nightmare. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think Cavani... That deal's getting a lot of flack. And I think, you know, as a short-term option, I think he could be good because I think he'd be a very good influence over, you know, Rashford, Greenwood and the other young players around that squad. I think um, he will score a few goals. You know, he's a seasoned professional. Um, uh, he's much better than Odion Agarlo. So I think, you know, 
at the face of it, they have got an upgrade, they've got better options in attack, but it's obviously not what they needed. Um, and, you know, to compound matters, not only did they not buy a defender, because I'm not calling Alex Tellis a defender, because it's not really his game. Um, so, not only did they not buy a defender, they got rid of their fourth best centre-back, maybe even third best centre-back in Chris Smalling by sending him to uh, Roma. So, I think if you're a Manchester United fan, you're extremely frustrated to be going into a season now with Harry Maguire, whose three-mistake sequence against uh, Tottenham was one of the most glorious moments I've seen in Premier League football for a while. Absolutely um, fantastic. Amazing. I've watched it so many times. And then, <laughs> and, then you, and then you've got, after that, Eric Bailly, Victor Lindelof, Phil Jones. You know, we still get to see him in the Premier League. We should all rejoice at that fact. <laughs> and they've still got Marcus Rojo on the books as well. So it's just um, a bewildering summer and you know one where I gave Edward Wood a little bit of credit last summer because I think he did okay I think they needed the centre-backs and they brought in Maguire and I still think there's a good player in Maguire he's just having a bad few weeks um I thought Juan Bissaka was an excellent signing um defensively the best right back in the Premier League and Daniel James is one for the future but you know and obviously they signed Bruno Fernandes a few months later but you know just when he kind of maybe deserved a little bit of patience maybe a little little bit of a lengthier leash from Man United fans he's just had a, maybe the worst summer um, of his reign as executive vice chairman that's saying something yeah it really is yeah you mentioned Rouse Chris Smalling that was a bit peculiar especially because they didn't they didn't really target a center back and they didn't really make a hard push to sign a center back um, that to me is is obviously the the, the biggest uh, the biggest oversight of this window and um, you know you're seeing Manchester City you know spending all this money on center backs and I know you're high on Maguire I just don't know if he has the uh, the consistency to a captain the team like United and b um, you know maintain uh, that back line and he has to anchor that back line there's no there's no question about it if he was playing more of a complementary role I would say maybe um, you know they would be able to get by but uh, him beside Lindelof is just not a convincing partnership. And Lindelof's entering his fourth season at United. He's failed to convince in every single campaign. Um, they've given him a fair chance. And I, I think, you know, the, 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 there needed to be an obvious upgrade there. So, um, yeah, a bit strange that they, you know, decided to go for all attacking players, really. Uh, and as you mentioned, Tells is more of a uh, attacking left back uh, than anything else. I do think it's a good thing that they brought in Cavani. Uh, I'm not sure that they could have survived uh, with with the the players that they had up front. Um, we saw towards the end of last season how fatigued um, that front four was. You really don't want to have Mason Greenwood um, at that level of exhaustion, at that risk of burnout uh, that early in his career. Um, so I think Cavani comes in, he'll bring some leadership qualities and you know what, he has a free transfer, he comes with high wages, but I don't really see how that move can harm United, um, at least in the short term. I mean, for me, it speaks volumes that, you know, out of the top six teams, I mean, who, who made business on the final day? I mean, uh, Arsenal went in for Thomas Partey, obviously, but otherwise it was just Manchester United scrambling around for recruits, wasn't it? And they didn't just buy Cavani, they bought Tellers, as we've mentioned, and they bought a couple of... Uh, 18-year-old wingers. I mean, what's going on? Why is a club this big so obviously disorganised? It's, it's crazy. And as for Maguire, I, I think, you know, they have to play him. They spent 80 million quid on him. They got 100%. Him choice. Yeah, they 100%. have to. And, and I still, you know, as I said, I still think I still think he's a good player. But I think the, the thing with Maguire is, like, who's you playing with? Because he's kind of like, he's both an old-school defender in how he likes getting his head on things and maybe giving it the odd hoof. But in the other ways, he's all, like a very modern defender in how he's very, very good at striding forward the ball and you know just generally quite comfortable in possession. So, you know, what kind of defender do you put alongside him? Do you put a, you know an old head alongside him, or do you put I don't know, like maybe he's just impossible to have a partner for him. I would say probably an old head. You know, somebody who just a stay-at-home defender um, and somebody who you know can anchor the defense. Whereas Maguire is a bit of a I don't want to say a wild card, but he does offer you, like you said, that kind of upside with the ball. I think, you know, if he had more of a, a stay-at-home defender beside him, I think maybe, you know, you'd be able to mitigate some of the things that, you know, we've seen from him uh, over the last few weeks. So, 
Uh, and, and again, you know, the, the, these issues at the back are, are plain to see, uh, and it's it's quite uh, it, it's unbelievable, really, that a club of United stature um, was a unable to land um, you know a player in a position of need, and b didn't really seem too bothered by it, um, and and c allowed allowed a perfectly good center back in Smalling to leave for you know fifteen million euros. Okay, they got something for him, but. I don't know. I just feel like they've just mismanaged that whole position. For starters, you asked who would be his ideal partner. I mean, I think the first thing you need is somebody with a very small head to balance that out between <laughs> the two of them. Um, I, I Realistically, I do think you need somebody who has a little bit of athleticism, which is not a strength of Maguire's game, I don't think. You know, we've seen kind of the that turning radius has not looked great recently, and maybe that's a little bit of a blip. But when Maguire gets in trouble... I think you need somebody who's quick enough to bail him out defensively behind him. And, you know, Manchester United were sniffing around Deo Bumacano a little bit. They wanted Matias De Ligt last summer. And I think both of those guys would have been great um, partners for him just for those reasons, because physically they're incredible. Um, but obviously they didn't get either of them. So they're stuck with what they've got now. And Rouse, as you said, we're going to be treated to some Phil Jones, perhaps not in the Europa League because he's been left out of the squad, but certainly in the Premier League. Yeah, certainly. And like actually the, the attributes you describe for a partner for Maguire, you know, Eric Bailly could you know tick a lot of those boxes. I actually think he's a very good defender, but his record of injuries is just completely unreliable. But yeah, I mean, United's defence is pretty poor. Their attack is ridiculously stacked, despite missing out on Sancho and Grealish and whoever else, Dembele. Um, and so, you know, while it's extremely frustrating for Man United fans, it's going to be very, very entertaining to watch Man United play this season, just because it's going to be, you know, as I say, you know, when, when a team can't defend and can attack, it's, it's Kevin Keegan football, and that's what we're going to be seeing there. <laughs> Manchester United versus Chelsea, those games will be uh, very fun to watch all season long. As for some other deals that were completed on deadline day, if you look at Manchester United and the struggles that they've had and uh, the issues with the signings that we just mentioned, I think one team that has to be sitting there kind of licking their lips at the possibility now despite some of the problems that they still have, is surely Arsenal. And Rouse, you brought up Thomas Partey, who they finally got on deadline day, waited until exactly half an hour before the deadline closed to pay his 50 million euro release clause, something that Atletico Madrid were um, not pleased about the way it went down. But uh, there you have it. I'm of two minds about this because I think in a vacuum, he's a good player and he does a lot of very good things. And he will inevitably make Arsenal better. But I don't know if on his own, he can do everything that's needed of him to take them to that next level. No, I completely agree. I mean, obviously, he'll bring a lot more tactical discipline than Granit Xhaka and Mohamed on any. Um, so to have Partey and Ceballos in the centre of the field, I think you know, in pretty decent shape. But you know, because of the... You know, he's not the most inventive of players, Partey. And, you know, obviously they would have got that with uh, Hussein Moir, who I think whoever, he's inevitably going to end up in the Premier League, I think, and whoever gets him is going to be very, very fortunate because he's a fantastic player. Um, but for Partey, I, yeah, he's just, his passing range, is, I think, has improved at Atletico Madrid. I think he did show, he did create a little bit more for them, but I don't think it's enough. I, I think for now, Arteta is still going to be relying on the... Uh, you know, the runs out wide from Aubameyang, Saka and Pepe, where, you know, in an ideal world, he'd have a little bit more um, penetration from his number eights in, in his squad and he'd maybe have Aubameyang in a central position, just, you know, picking up on those three balls. But for now, it's, you know, it's a work in progress for Arsenal. I mean, I think we can all agree on the fact that they've improved, you know, immeasurably under Arteta, really. And I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think they can challenge for fourth place. You know, I, I've... I've I've mocked Arsenal plenty of times in the past, but I think they're in decent shape. I, I think I think they'll be there or thereabouts come the end of the season. Sadly, we don't have Michael Chandler here today to uh, talk up Arsenal's title chances, but maybe next week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Anthony, the other interesting thing, maybe interesting is not the right word, but potentially concerning thing, I think if you're an Arsenal supporter, this is $50 million being spent on a 27-year-old who... Yes, he makes you better now, but I think when you look at the makeup of your squad, obviously they've decided it's time to go all in and maybe there's an opportunity to be seized and they need to get back into the Champions League. But 
I feel like some of this short-term thinking is perhaps what may have gotten Arsenal into a little bit of this problem to begin with. Yeah, it's difficult because um, obviously there can be questions about the fee. Um, Atletico held firm throughout the summer saying, you know, it's, it's, it's his release clause or nothing. Um, and I think they, you know, that's partly why they were looking at a war and partly why they didn't offer to spend as much uh, inevitably on war. I, I think party all along was the number one option. Um, and then they went for a war thinking that they could get him at a cheaper price. Um, and then they just waited until the end of the window to, because they knew, you know, they didn't have to negotiate for party. They could just activate the release clause and that's it. Um, so whether that backfired, I'm not sure. Um, uh, but I do think that party was their, their number one target. Um, and I do think, you know, he makes the team better. You know, I, I do think Awar would have been a better fit for Arsenal. Um, he has, you know, more of those um, playmaking abilities that we've uh, come to associate with Arsenal players. Um, but Party, I think, is, I, I don't think he's a bad signing. Um, I, I think, you know, he'll provide some stability to that midfield. The attacking four will, will be allowed to just, um, you know, do what they please in the final third. I, I think you know, having somebody like Party um, behind them, he'll be able to sweep up a lot of the uh, the mess that may be left behind. So I'm excited to see how this all comes together. Um, and, and if Arsenal are able to continue to score goals at a high rate, if they're able to get shots on target, um, uh, we'll have to see what happens over the next uh, few months. I think that's also a perfect segue and a perfect comparison to make to another big deal that we saw on transfer deadline day and another one that had been rumored for quite some time, Anthony, and that's Federico Chiesa making his move to Juve in a very classic Serie style transfer. Two-year loan, $3 million for the first year, $7 million for the second year, $40 million euro obligation to sign in the third year, with some bonuses that could increase by another $10 million. It's all very mathematical. It's all very potentially confusing. But at the end of the day, what we have is one of Italy's most exciting and perhaps most frustrating young players moving to Andrea Pirlo's new-look Juve side. Yeah, it is an interesting signing. Um, a lot of people are comparing it to Bernardeschi's move to Juve. Uh, oh, dear God. I hope it works out better than that. About that, exactly. Um but there, there's still, you know, a lot of a lot of hope for Chiesa. Um, obviously, coming from Fiorentina, playing for Italy, um, having that pedigree with his last name. Um, there's there's still a lot of uh, hope, and then there's obviously some potential there. I'm not a, a massive Chiesa fan. Um, I think he's unfortunately been. Um, hyped up a little bit too much by the Italian media to the point where we've kind of lost sight of the player he is or can be, you know, he, he struggles to, to convert his chances that that's very clear. And he's gained, a, he's gained a bit of a reputation of diving. Um, but, you know, there's also this tactical transformation that he seems to be undergoing right now. And it looks like it might even continue at Juve. Um, he's played as a right wing back, um, and in the, in the first few games of the season with Fiorentina and it, um, looks like Pirlo might play in there as well. That's, that, that remains to be seen, but it'll be interesting because, you know, it, it seems like a, it would be a shame to, to lose, uh, or to, to withdraw him from, you know, an attacking position where he obviously flourishes. Um, but, you know. If he can, if he can provide that explosiveness at the right wing back position, then I, I think you know there could be something there. There could be something there. I think that'll be one of the more interesting tactical uh, storylines to to follow over the uh, over the course of the season. I know it's hard to kind of judge this deal because I know a lot of this bit is built around the lad's potential, but you know, to me, a potential sixty million euros for a lad who's still working out. Have Fiorentina done really, really well out of this? I agree. I agree. I think on the surface, it doesn't look like they've paid a lot because the the, the money is stretched over, a, you know, basically a five-year window. But I still, at the end of the day, 
they're guaranteed to get that money. Uh, this is more of a cash flow, um, a question of cash flow. So they're going to get that money eventually. And I think, you know, again, 60 million euros for uh, a winger who's, he's, he's been okay. And he obviously he has potential, but uh, I just, I just don't know if, if this one's going to work out. I'm just, I'm not a hundred percent sure about it. If this one doesn't work out, then Juve has to stop doing business with Fiorentina. <laughs> I mean, they're just bankrolling that club. Jesus. Uh, the one thing that you mentioned that I'm intrigued by, as you said, you know, the right wing back role that he's been playing at Fiorentina and could potentially continue to play now. You don't need your right wing back to be an elite scorer. Uh, and so, you know, his shot selection and his shooting percentages have not been great over the early years of his career. But I don't need... Uh, at Juve in particular, with guys like Ronaldo and Dybala and uh, Morata's there now as well, and even Kulisevsky, they don't need Chiesa to be a bona fide big-time scorer. So perhaps that will help him a little bit, at least in the early years while he's there. And maybe he can continue to grow that part of his game. So I think that maybe plays a little bit into the thinking. And in an ideal world, it works out that way. Uh, obviously, he could just be who he is already at 22 years old. And then, yeah, 60 million doesn't look great at that point. But, uh, yeah, I think we'll just have to see how it goes again, especially when we're talking about guys at this age. You need to give it a couple years, uh, you know, even though we're about to discuss the winners and losers of the transfer window on no evidence at all. uh, I think you have to give this one some time. And very quickly, before we look at the big picture of the transfer window, one of the most hilarious deals of deadline day. Eric Chupomoting's career path is absolutely outstanding. For somebody to have played at Stoke to end up at PSG and now Bayern Munich on a free transfer. I mean, Ralph, this guy's living the dream. Who is this fella's agent? I mean, like Chupomoting's agent must be winning awards or something like that if they do an award ceremony for agents because you know, I, I, if I was his client, you know, if I was like under this Asian same umbrella, I'd be thinking to myself, well, why aren't, why aren't I getting a move that Chupo Moting's getting? Because I was just looking at his agency now where Chupo Moting, uh, you know, the agency he's under, and it's like Roberto Firmino's there. You know, there are links for him to be leaving Liverpool. Nothing transpired. Um, Taimuri Bakayoko, I suppose he's done quite well out of it. But there's also player. Well, actually, actually, maybe this agent is the best. He's got Joe Ellington. He's got Joe Ellington, <laughs> oh and he managed God. to get him a forty million move to Newcastle. Oh, this guy's word. a genius. Who is he? Forty is million for what? Two goals he scored. Three goals he scored in a year and a half. This is absolutely incredible. Yeah. They, they, okay. This. Yeah. They, yeah. Chief promoting's agent's an absolute genius. Yeah. That's, <laughs> me, that's uh, a conclusion for me. Give me a fight to the death between that guy and George Mendes. Special oh, guest yeah. referee Mino Raiola. I mean, we'll just have George, carnage. George Mendes is making money off the the lads selling lemonade on, on the side of my street here. I mean, like he just <laughs> he just seems to be making money left, right, and center, no matter what the operation is. I was reading that uh, he's making money on deals involving players that he doesn't even represent. That's right. He's sort of an intermediary now. He's become uh, he's become such a colossus in this game that he is now kind of the intermediary for a lot of these teams and teams have to go through him as god knows we've seen with wolves who are essentially run by his agency um yeah that guy's just making money hand over fist here we go money talks here comes the money But just to get back to Chupamoting for a second, I think he fits a certain prototype of player that we're starting to see, um, similar to Martin Braithwaite who went to Barcelona. That um, you know, a player who you know may not have the quality that's required at some of these big clubs, but somebody who can do a job and is happy to sit on the bench. And I think it's really, really difficult finding those players. So. Um, you know, I see Chupo Mauding falling right into that bracket. You either have a journeyman like him or someone from the academy, you know, uh, someone from the academy sitting on the bench waiting for his chance. Uh, that seems to be the, the only two scenarios um, that are playing out at, at bigger clubs, especially when it comes to the forward positions, because for some of these guys, you know, they're only going to make maybe four or five starts uh, in a single season just to give the, the top guns um, some time uh, to rest. So uh, I think it's a bit of an interesting um, development that we're seeing. And 
it's kind of fun uh, to see guys who traditionally would never have a chance uh, to play for these big clubs. They're getting that chance and uh, they're, they seem to be enjoying it. So any any player right now listening to this podcast, you can if do you it. Have, <laughs> if you have average talent and absolutely no ambition, you're going to be playing in the Champions League this season. One hundred percent. Yes. To all the professional footballers listening, I'm sure there are absolutely scores of them out there. Uh, that's the biggest <laughs> takeaway. Fair play to Chupomoting because I mean he did prove a little bit in the post lockdown Champions League mini tournament that he could be useful for PSG, especially in that game against Atalanta and. Um, I guess he realized, hey, I came within one step of winning the Champions League, losing to Bayern at PSG, so we'll take the next step, and now maybe he'll win the Champions League with Bayern Munich this season. All right, guys, let's change gears here a little bit and go more to a a broader scope. As we mentioned earlier, the winners and losers. I don't think we have to rehash Manchester United, Rouse, because um, that's just a big old LOL at their transfer window, an obvious loser. Even somebody with with rose-colored glasses, I think, would have to admit that. But who are some of the other clubs that you think either did very well or did very, very poorly this summer? I think, uh, you know, we talked about Everton an awful lot, um, about how they've retooled their midfield and, you know, Calvert-Lewin just really playing so much better with better players. You know, what what a coincidence. Um, But I think their final day was also very impressive, bringing in Ben Godfrey, who... Is an interesting player, um, you know, Norwich City picked him up from York City, um, obviously saw a bit of an unpolished diamond there, um, they sent him out to Shrewsbury Town on loan, um, where he played in midfield, and he really honed his ball-playing skills there, went back to Norwich, slightly straight into the centre defence, and you know, even though they were awful in the Premier League for the most part, Godfrey was one of the few bright lights to shine from that side, and uh, I think, you know, in the future with Ben Godfrey and Mason Holgate, uh, two Yorkshire lads, um, they could have a very, very good defensive partnership there, Everton. And then on top of that, they signed uh, Robin Olsen on loan, um, who, you know, overall has been a bit of a disaster at Roma. But, you know, he's a player who can put a bit of competition on Jordan Pickford for the goalkeeping spot. And I just feel that, you know, while Everton lack the depth, to make a title challenge. Um, I actually saw Harry Redknapp saying he thinks Everton can win the league on Sky Sports News the other day, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, st- steady on, mate. Um, but I, I think uh, I, I think they, they do like the depth, but I think the pieces they're putting together there are really, really interesting. And, you know, you get another team in the Premier League that, um, great going forward, a little bit susceptible at the back, just pure entertainment and absolute bedlam. And that's what we want to see. I also want to shower some praise on Spurs for re-signing Gareth Bale on a loan deal that's pretty friendly to them. Um, they're sharing the wages with uh, Real Madrid, so it's it's a very low-risk deal. And uh, you have a player who, yes, while injured, um, can still offer something. And I think he'll do a great job alongside Harry Kane. I think Kane's needed um, that kind of assistance up front for, for a while now. And there are questions about his own fitness and whether he can last the whole season. And I think Gareth Bale comes in and I think he has a lot to prove. You know, I think there's a chip on his shoulder after what's been a couple of years in the wilderness, um, you know, for the Welshman at Real Madrid. It's It's been a difficult time. He just wants to play. Um, and I think, you know, he, he has that, that affection, that, that, that affection that he maybe was missing at Real Madrid. The setup's very good for, for Bale. And I think, I think we'll end up, seeing him have some sort of a bounce-back season. One club that I mentioned in the last podcast that I was a bit, been a bit shaky about their business was uh, Aston Villa. And, you know, I'm not going to retract my comments after a 7-2 win over Liverpool. Um, I, I still feel you that... sure? Now's your chance. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to stick to my guns and be stubborn about this because, you know, I've been banging the Ollie Watkins run for a while. I think he's a really good player and I, I like Matty Cash as well, but still... You know, something like 42 million quid for the both of them still presents a gamble. These are players that have only been moved into their recent into their positions of striker and right back within the last two years. So they're still very green behind the ears. I, I still don't think you can expect them to have a, you know, it'd be absolute instant hits in the Premier League. I think that's putting too, far too much pressure on the shoulders. And on top of that, they've also got you know, Bertrand Chayore, who we discussed as being inconsistent. And uh, they brought in Ross Barkley as well, who, um, despite his you know, really, really good performance against Liverpool, um, you know, funny he turns it on when he's a lifelong Evertonian. Um, but <laughs> I just think he's the one of the most frustrating players to watch in the Premier League. So I think Villa look good at the moment. I think Dean Smith's doing a wonderful job and I'm really happy for him given what he's been through personally. But 
I still am not convinced by Villa's business. Uh, I hope they prove me wrong, though. Two quick ones from me that I guess we can kind of lump in together in the same category. Real Madrid and Barcelona, both very disappointing transfer windows, and it's hard to compare it to previous windows, obviously, with everything that's going on financially created by the pandemic and all the struggles that all these clubs are having. But Barcelona literally had no money. They couldn't sign Memphis Depay on deadline day, even for a huge discount that Lyon were offering. We know all about the Pjanic-Arthur swap that they had to pull off strictly for financial reasons. I think on the pitch, that's just frankly a downgrade. And, um, you know, they got Serginio Destin, which, side note, big transfer window for the U.S. men's national team Mm -hmm. and the women's team. Dest to Barcelona, McKenney to Juve, Tobin Heath and Kristen Press, both to Manchester United. So some huge moves for the U.S. Alex Morgan to Tottenham as well. To Spurs as well. So big-time moves for the Americans on both sides of the ball. But um, yeah, Barcelona, it creates this weird kind of situation in La Liga, which we may get into a little bit after the break. But who are the title favorites now? Because Barca, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid all have some very clear issues. Real Madrid and Barca in particular coming off those transfer windows. I mean, Zidane, it almost feels like he has no options, which is insane to say for a Real Madrid manager club of that stature and Barca these issues have been going on for for a little while now and you know obviously they kept hold of Leo Messi but how happy is he actually I guess we'll have to just wait and see on that one so I think those are two teams that are going to be very disappointed coming out of the transfer window and on the flip side a very quick winner Anthony we've discussed this at length Antonio (laughs) Conte I mean he's got to be grinning from ear to ear he was very vocal about his displeasure with uh, some of the players that he got last summer and not being backed by the Inter Brass. Well, they gave him everybody he wanted this summer, even some guys who perhaps they should not have signed, like Alexander Kolarov and Arturo Vidal. But um, I do think they came away with the single best signing of the summer, and that's Ashraf Hakimi from Real Madrid. Again, Real Madrid, what the hell's going on over there? I mean, For yeah. 40 million euros, a guy who... We may look back at in maybe even just a couple of years, never mind way down the line, as the single best fullback or wingback in the world. And he fits that team absolutely perfectly, and he's got off to a flyer there. Yeah, they threw away Hakimi and Reggaeon, um, who could have, you know, you can consider them the left back and right backs of the future. Um, I, it's a bit, a bit peculiar just to see them, uh, you know, maybe the financial situation is, is really hurting Real Madrid, but. With a number of injuries and, and with, with an aging squad, it, it just doesn't seem like they've calculated um, just how taxing this season is going to be for a lot of these players. Uh, this is not a, a normal season. majority of these players did not have uh, a, a, a preseason of, of substance, really. And, um, you know, the, the matches are going to come thick and fast. And, you know, there are going to be situations with COVID and cases popping up it's going to be physically emotionally mentally challenging and um to see a big club like real madrid to sign nobody you know their only business really is bringing back odegaard from real sociedad on loan um they sign nobody and there are no guarantees that hazard's going to be healthy this season um early indications not great not great you know and if god forbid if benzema goes down i mean (laughs) Who are you going to throw in? Lucas Vasquez? He's not going to save the season for you. So it, it's, it, it, I think, honestly, I think it's right for Atletico Madrid to win the title. Um, I really, really do like the move for Suarez, free transfer. Um, and you get a guy who now, another guy who has a chip on his shoulder, um, you know, it feels probably scorned by Barcelona and um, you know, I think he can do a good job. Suarez and, and Diego Simeone just, it's like a match made in hell, you know, like those, <laughs> those, those, those two guys are one of the same. And, um, I don't know. I just, I have a good feeling about Atletico Madrid. That squad is now like the living embodiment of that Spider-Man meme where they're pointing at each other because they're all the same. They're all the same guys. Suarez and Costa and Simeone and even Torreira now too. Literally all shit disturbers. And it's going to be incredible. <laughs> Well, I completely agree with Lopo. I, I, I really kind of hot on Atletico Madrid to win La Liga. And 
you know, half because of what they've got, um, because it's all, you know, as you said, the embodiment of uh, Simeone, but and half because of uh, you know, Barcelona and Real Madrid are just complete shit shows at the moment. I mean, for that reason, for, for you saying about Real Madrid, Lopo, about, um, you know, the short, short uh, break and all this kind of stuff, about them being caught out and having to use Lucas Vasquez, I mean, couldn't you say the same about Inter? Half of the guys they're signing were probably conceived to, I don't know, Elvis Presley on the radio or something. They're so bloody old. <laughs> like, how, how are they expected to survive this season with a load of 35-year-olds? I think it's a bit different because the bench is a little bit deeper, I think, than Real Madrid. Um, you know, they can still bring up Sanchez, and if they want to bring on Ericsson, um, they can do that. I, I think that their bench is a little bit deeper than Real Madrid's, and I think... You know, um, it, you know, it also depends, though, on whether Conte actually rotate, rotates these guys. Um, you know, he's infamous for, for not doing that enough. And uh, I just, uh, he, he has no complaints now. Uh, that, that, that's the bottom line. He complained all last season that he didn't have the team to compete. Uh, well, now he does. And if Inter, you know, don't end up with anything this season, it's going to be on Conte. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's let go. So... Um, a lot of pressure on Inter now uh, that they have, um, you know, a team to, to compete for silverware. And um, maybe that could have an adverse effect on Inter. Big chance for them this year, you know, with Pirlo coming in and we're not sure what Juve is. And like you said, Conte got all of his guys. All of his targets are there. He has the squad. Rest assured, though, regardless of what happens, even if they win the freaking title, he'll find something to complain about. 100%. <laughs> All right, guys, very, very quickly before we go to the break, any other deals, good, bad, intriguing, that uh, caught you by surprise or that you're just very interested by? I'm just fascinated about Wolves, to be honest, because I know a lot of people have uh, kind of giggled at the Nelson Semedo signing. And, you know, with some grounding, you know, it's a bit of a strange one when you let Matt Doherty go. But I think elsewhere, Wolves are really, you know, building for the future here. And they've still got an excellent complement of attackers with Raul Jimenez, Adama Traore, Daniel Pedence and Pedro Neto. Like, I love all of those players. And then bringing in Fabio Silva, who's highly rated, that eight, Nori, the fullback, uh, Kajana Hoiva from Liverpool, uh, Fatinha. They're, they're really looking towards the future. And I think we might see a, a little bit of regression from Wolves this season because they're a little bit unfamiliar with each other, some of these players. But I think... You know, for this group of players that a lot of them are aged between 18 and maybe 24, I think they're going to be fantastic in two or three years' time. So I'm really excited to see how this team develops under Nuno Espirito Santo. And for me, it's got to be Chelsea. That That's the team that I'm going to keep an eye on for the remainder of the season. Obviously, they spent a boatload of cash. Um, they brought in a left back. They brought in a center back. They brought in all the forwards you can imagine. Um, this is a team that's, you know, uh, ready to fire in all cylinders. Still questions about their defense, um, and rightfully so. I think it'll take a few games for Thiago Silva to get truly adjusted to the Premier League, and he's just coming off uh, a very long season with PSG as well, so I'm sure fatigue is an element as well. Um, but uh, I do think uh, once they are truly up and running, um, they're going to be difficult to stop. And, you know, uh, Werner and Kai Havertz and Zayek when he's fully fit and Pulisic as well. Uh, it's an embarrassment of riches up top. And uh, I think, you know, it, it, as long as they outscore the opposition, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that, that's that's the one team that I'm I'm really interested in watching. I was also interested in looking through our transfer tracker just now and just seeing the players that are, uh, you know, still at clubs and you're just thinking, what the hell are you doing there? Like, uh, now, Islam Slomani, uh, 32 years old, he scored two goals over his past two league seasons. He's still hanging around at Leicester City. How is that guy not in Turkey? It's crazy. Like, oh, uh, that, like how yeah. I think he was rubbish for Fenerbahce. I think that's half the reason he got one goal for them last season. And then also you got uh, you know, Fraser Forster, who turns 33 in March. He hasn't played for... He's played for side one game for Southampton in nearly three years, and that was a 3-0 loss. And... Patrick Roberts of Manchester City was this great hope at Fulham. You know, he turns 24 next year, uh, started eight games for Middlesbrough in the Championship last season. He's back on loan. You know, he's he's back at Manchester City after his loan expired. And you're just wondering, you know, these players, just get out of those clubs. Just save your careers because they are stagnating. Yeah, I feel bad for Fraser Forster because I think he was quite a good keeper, actually, until he had that really 
gruesome kind of weird kneecap injury, which is not an injury, at least not a specific knee injury that you see very often. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just obviously derailed his career. And it's a, a tale as old as time. An injury kind of just takes a guy completely off the map. So that's a tough one there. But yeah, there are a lot of guys who are essentially, um, you know, the Jack Rodwell treatment. They're just going to be sitting on the bench and fair play to them. They're collecting paychecks. I'm sure they're not too uh, too displeased about that, all things considered. All right. I think that'll close out the first segment. A lot of transfer talk and uh, we'll do it all over again in what? A few months time when the January transfer window opens. But for now, that'll close the book on that. We'll take a quick break and we'll look at the ridiculous results in the Premier League last weekend. Hey there, listeners. If you want more insight and analysis just like this for all of your other favorite sports, then you have to check out the complete collection of shows on the Score Podcast Network. Basketball fans, Pound the Rock dives deep into everything that's going on in the always entertaining world of the NBA. For all you baseball buffs, our Expand the Zone show meticulously breaks down the latest news from the Diamond. Hockey fans, check out Puck Pursuit for weekly interviews with industry-leading experts. And finally, if you're looking for fantasy football advice, Justin Boone's Fantasy Football Podcast is the only show that you need if you want to win your league. Every show on the SCORE Podcast Network is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. All right, welcome back to the Sweeper Keeper podcast. And listeners, a reminder, as always, that we always want to hear from you. So if you want to get in on the conversation, hit us up on Twitter at Daniel J. Rouse for Daniel Rouse, at Sports Caddy for Anthony Lapopolo, and at Gianluca Neshi for myself. You can also bother Michael Chandler with all your Arsenal musings and why they won't finish top four at Sandwich underscore Dad. And don't forget to like, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. All right, gents, let's close out today's show. As we mentioned before, just a pretty ridiculous weekend last weekend. Feels like a long time ago now with all the transfer window stuff we've had. But uh, Rouse, Liverpool, and Aston Villa... I don't think it's a stretch to say this is one of the most shocking results we've seen, certainly in in recent memory, but perhaps in Premier League history. The reigning champions give up seven goals to a team that barely escaped relegation last year. Uh, Is this just a a one-off and just a blip for Liverpool, or were there things here that you saw that are perhaps more concerning going forward for the rest of the season? I think there are a few concerns here, because... um... I think I was on a podcast after they beat um, Chelsea, Liverpool beat Chelsea, and everyone was getting very overexcited about that. And I you know, couldn't help but point out that Chelsea had 10 men for a lot of that game and weren't playing particularly well. So I think a lot of people got carried away with that. And obviously the start of the season, you know, Leeds almost did a number on Liverpool. So there were warning signs there already for me. And then with this game... Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. Hunger is always a very hard thing after teams won a title. And... I don't think, uh, you know, the likes of Virgil van Dijk, um, Trent Alexander-Arnold, maybe Joe Gomez. I think he was scapegoated maybe a little bit too much after this game. But I, I don't, maybe the hunger's not there. Maybe not, they're not switched on as much as they were. But also the criticism has to come down to Jurgen Klopp at this one because Aston Villa were just hitting them again and again and again, getting behind that high line. And it was just far too easy. And there were no tweaks to kind of say okay this is getting really really embarrassing now let's try and keep it down to four no they just let Villa come at them again and again and again I just didn't understand it and obviously it's a whole failure of the system really because not only is the high line not working to breach that high line the players you know maybe in in Villa's midfield and in defense have to have that space to execute a pass behind that line so the press at the front is obviously not working as well and maybe it lacks a little bit of cohesion because Sadio Mane was out, I'm not too sure, but I think there was a whole systematic failure against Aston Villa and, you know, I think really Klopp is quite lucky to have this international break now to kind of sort it out, to dish out the discipline and to maybe reconsider a plan B for whenever he's in this situation again. We saw the issues with the high line a little bit in that game against Arsenal as well, where Arsenal had a lot of time and space 
And Alexander Lacazette in particular had a couple of very good chances. I think he was offside on one, but he was onside for another, and uh, Allison made a great save on a breakaway. So this is not something that just popped up completely out of the blue. Um, there were some warning signs here. Yeah, I certainly think so. And I think, uh, I feel a bit sorry for, for Adrian in goal. I mean, I think out of the, you know, I say in quotation marks, big six teams in the Premier League, I think he's probably one of the weaker back of goalkeepers because he got dropped at West Ham. I think he might have been third choice by the time he, he, he left the club. But um, I feel quite bad for him. He made the mistake early in the game um, when Ollie Watkins got his first goal. Um but yeah, I, I I think it's wrong to scapegoat him. I think it's wrong to scapegoat Joe Gomez as he seems to have been because he was substituted early in this game. I think it's just a uh, yeah an issue at both ends of the line, at both attacking. The press wasn't all there, and the defense with the uh, the line not being all there. And uh, for me, if with you no know, Klopp leans so much on his system, the failure lies with him, and it's for him to sort out over these two weeks. And I'm sure he will. I tip him for the title. Klopp's good at making things fun, and I think he'll make uh, trying to, them trying to protect their title a fun pursuit rather than a stressful pursuit, and I think they'll do it. But you know, there's a, there's a lot of work to him for him this next fortnight. It definitely tees up a, a fun and intriguing season for us as neutrals watching. Where you know Liverpool coming off the back of that historic loss, Manchester City a little bit rickety early on, and then you have all the teams we've talked about: Arsenal, Manchester United. Chelsea, Tottenham, to a certain extent, you don't know what you're going to get from any of them on a given day. So for the neutral viewers, hey, maybe this is Everton's chance if James Rodriguez stays healthy all season. Who knows? And maybe uh, you said, who was it that was predicting Everton for the title? Oh, it's Harry Redknapp. Well, stuck his, uh, I, said, I don't want to say stuck his neck out, but I'm not too sure if he's got a neck. But he, uh, he, he, he kind of like said, you know what? I think they got a chance. And he, he was the first pundit or anybody in football I've heard say it, and I was kind of a bit flabbergasted by that because I'd love to see it. It would be amazing. It would be a great story, but nah, not for me. So who knows? Maybe the old Wheeler Dealer's onto something there, Harry Redknapp, with this prediction. Um, another league, Anthony, that uh, we've talked about a little bit so far today, but that is setting up to be very interesting all season long, and that's City, uh, and not least of which because it continues to be easily the worst run league and organization maybe in all of sports uh, which is a big statement especially considering a lot of the nefarious things that go on with some other sporting mm-hmm. bodies that we won't discuss but <laughs> this league is just absolutely ridiculous um, if you haven't seen it yet the Juve Napoli match essentially a farce Juve taking the field announcing a starting lineup playing up the entire bit knowing full well that Napoli were not going to travel, were not on the plane, um, because of a COVID-19 outbreak and some positive cases. And yet you have the City A officials and the, the health authorities saying, yeah, no problem. It's only two players. You guys go ahead. And local authorities saying, no, once they got to the airport, you can't go anywhere. And so you have this, uh, like I said, this farce that unfolds. No game has been played. It's just about a week later now and still no final decision as to what's going to actually happen and when that game's going to be either rescheduled or, or deemed a forfeit. And in typical Italian football fashion, Anthony, nobody knows what the hell's going on. Just leave it to Italian bureaucracy to destroy one of the world's best sports. I just, I just don't get how there can be such an absence of leadership just time and again, year after year, it's the same thing. And we don't really even know what is what has actually happened here. Um, there are conflicting reports uh, about you know the local authorities in Napoli and whether they you know truly blocked Napoli from traveling or whether Napoli asked them. And uh, it's just it's just a circus. And there's obviously um, you know there are rules in place. Um, if you have 13 players and a goalkeeper, that that's the bare minimum you need. And if you have more than that, then you're good to play. And teams have played so far in Serie A with active cases uh, in their squad. So um, for Napoli to to say themselves that they can't play, I, I don't know if they're if that argument holds water. 
Um, now, if the local authorities really truly block them from traveling because of you know quarantine restrictions, then you know there has to be some sort of uh, agreement between Syria and the, and and you know these these authorities uh, at the municipal, at the federal level, what have you. Um, there has to be some sort of agreement here because you can't have all these moving parts. Uh, it's just it's impossible to navigate the situation. Um, does do the local authorities trump the league? I would say probably they should. Um, but again, we don't really know what the true story is. So uh, this is unfortunately, I don't think this is going to be the only um, such incident uh, that involves this. But uh, I just I hope they clear clarify it. Uh, I just. Um, this is a very fluid situation. I think there has to be, um, you know, some discretion here um, and, and leadership. And I just don't think City is capable of that. Yeah. And I think first and foremost, obviously, all of us, the main concern is that all these players, anybody involved with these clubs that has been infected, the main concern is their health. And we want them all to, to fully recover and, and to be healthy and to be okay. And I think everybody echoes that sentiment. Uh, and then... You know, from a purely sporting perspective, selfishly, it, it did rob us of what was going to be or what could have been a truly great match. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that I think a lot of Italian football fans were really looking forward to. Napoli had been flying to start the season. And again, we said earlier, you know, this new look Juve under Pirlo where we're not really sure what we're going to get. It's been very open so far. So this could have been a real barn burner. Hopefully that's rescheduled. I think that's probably in everybody's best interest. But you know, to, to hammer home that point one more time. There's a lot of intrigue in City A this year, a lot of exciting teams. We have Atalanta right at the top of that list. Inter, we talked about. AC Milan are, are making a little bit of a resurgence here. We just need the league to stay out of its own way. That's right. Take their heads out of their asses for once, please, and just allow what is a very good product to, to really flourish and maybe get back to... Um, some semblance of where it was, perhaps not all the way back to where it was in the 90s when it was the league to watch, but we're inching in that direction if the league can get out of its own way. Whether or not they can do that uh, in classic Italian fashion, we'll just have to wait and see. All right, and I think that's as good a note as any for us to call it a day here to uh, rip on Italian bureaucracy. That's what all the listeners come to that's the Superkeeper podcast for. <laughs> so, on that note, thank you very much to. Daniel Rouse, and to his Mazda. Thank you very much. This is perfect timing because the sun is shining on me and I feel like I'm sat in a greenhouse now. I am warm. <laughs> is your uh, is your pal still out there gardening? No, he's gone in. Oh, no, yeah, I can see him now. He just pops into the back garden again. He's, he works hard, that Joseph. <laughs> Some marathon gardening session. Talk about a green thumb. Thank <laughs> you very much to Anthony Lopopolo as well. My pleasure as always. Most importantly, thank you guys very much for listening. I'm Gianluca Neshi. We'll talk soon. You fill up my senses Like a gallon of madness Like a package of woodbines Like a good pinch of snuff Like a night out in Sheffield like a greasy chipotle I shall